Welcome to Politics Done Differently, a no-frills political podcast for the everyday voter, aiming to engage Australians in the political agenda. Hosted by Katarina Sullivan, businesswoman, award-winning sustainability expert, and political junkie. This episode of Politics Done Differently is brought to you by Strategic Sustainability Consultants, an Australian-based consultancy working with businesses, governments, and not-for-profits to assist them in becoming economically, socially, and environmentally sustainable. Welcome to another episode of Politics Done Differently. We're back in Parliament House. Today we are here with Senator Katrina Billick, who is a Senator for Tasmania from the Labour Party. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much. And some of the life experiences that you've had. Um, the first thing I want to get into, and it's a very heavy topic for 9am on a Monday morning, but um, I'd love to talk about the committee that looked into rare cancer in Australia and ask you, how did that actually come about? Uh, well, that came about because I'm actually a brain tumour, brain cancer survivor. Mm-hmm. So in 2008, I was diagnosed with two brain tumours. Uh, and had surgery to remove those tumours and then some ongoing treatment for the next few months. Um, And so I'd always, um, since I'd been elected, I was elected in 2007 and had Mm -hmm. the brain tumours before I actually got here in 2008. Um, But I sort of developed an interest. I'd never heard of brain tumours or brain cancer before Mm -hmm. that. Uh, didn't know anything about it. So once I sort of got settled into this building, which takes a while yes. <laughs> uh, to, to learn all the, the rules and the ropes and everything else, uh, I started looking into brain cancer and I came across an organisation called Cure Brain Cancer Foundation um, who have been absolutely astoundingly helpful in so many ways and they raise funds for research and advocacy around brain cancer in particular Mm. Um, and I wanted to get up a a Senate inquiry uh, into brain cancer and the more I looked into some of the cancers the more I realised there was a a group of cancers that are called low survival rate LSR cancers. Um, Brain cancer has a survival rate of about 22%. Um, Some of these other cancers have even lower survival rates of Mm. 7-8% or um, for five years. And so I put together a bit of a proposal and took it to um, the powers that be and uh, got, got the inquiry up. Uh, got to say, it was a wonderful inquiry. It was quite heavy. It yes. was very heavy. Yeah. Uh, and to get an inquiry up, it has to go through the Senate and be approved, which it was. Yeah. Um, and then I had members of the government, um, uh, members of some of the minor parties as well on the committee. Mm-hmm. Um, and I do remember that the first morning that we heard evidence, uh, the very first people we heard from were pain, uh, brain cancer survivors um, or people that had, um, predominantly people that had lost people to brain cancer, including a number of parents who had lost children. Um, brain cancer in Australia kills more uh, children than any other disease mm-hmm. uh, and that's a fact that's not really well known. Um, right. I, I repeat it ad nauseum because it's really important to me. We lose 35 kids on average a year in Australia from brain cancer. Um, so I, I got the inquiry up and then on this very first morning we heard sort of had this great impact of hearing from, from these people first up. Um, and a number of the other senators were in tears um, through this event and sort of came to me in the morning tea and said, what have we got into? What have you gotten us into? Which to me was really good because it obviously had a really great impact on them. So we had the inquiry and um, the government um, came to the par on a number of the recommendations and have put in quite a bit of money to um, help with brain cancer survival. So um, it had a really strong impact um, for anyone in that area. It is an area I'm really passionate about. Um, having met um, people through Cure Brain Cancer Foundation, I also set up a Tasmanian walk. Um, every state had a walk, but Tasmania, so I set that up a number of years ago. Mm-hmm. 
We've raised over $190,000 just on those walks and I did have a concert that I got Russell Morris oh, wow. to come to Hobart to do a number of years ago. Uh, and we raised, so between the two events, yeah. the, the ongoing annual walk and that, we've raised over $190,000. That's amazing. Uh, which is enough to fund, um, fund a, a small clinical trial. So it's really good. Yeah, it's great work. Yeah. I think... I know in my work around sustainability and development that those you look at some of the statistics sometimes and you get caught up in the statistics and you forget those individual stories of people who are struggling and you look at low survival rate cancers or rare cancers and you think well why would we pour so much money into this when there's cancers that we could pour money into that will save you know a third of the population. Um, and I think those individual stories are very important to hear because you remember that there's people behind the statistics. That's right. That's right. And it's, you know, I understand there's only a certain bucket of money yeah. to go, you know, for the health budget. I understand that completely. But some cancers get a lot more uh, recognition than other cancers, mm -hmm. and that's part of the problem. Um, and, you know, it's the term the sexy cancers has been yeah. used on a number of occasions. Um, brain cancer is never going to be sexy to begin with the colours, you know, although they cure brain cancer's colours purple, the colours should probably really be grey. Um, so that's not really a sexy colour. Um, and, you know, you're never going to see, um, I don't think, um, some of those other cancers becoming sexy either. Mm. One of the really interesting things that came out of the inquiry was... Um, for example, with lung cancer, there's a lot of stigma still attached to people that have got lung cancer because everyone presumed they smoked and bought it on themselves. But we heard evidence from, you know, a woman, a young woman only in her 30s, never smoked in her life, had lung cancer. So there's a whole lot of issues there that you don't really stop and think about yeah. um, in regard to people that are, have got these low survival rate cancers too. And they're, they're, the odds are generally stacked against them. I mean, I do understand... You know, some people do survive well in, you know, in for decades yeah. um, with some of them, but generally the survival rates are really, really low and that's something we can do something about, but we have to encourage more researchers into those areas. Researchers tend to want to go into the sexy areas where they know, um, and part of, the, part of the, this issue is the funding cycle yeah. because if you're in a, if you're in a, um, a more well-known cancer area as a researcher then you're more likely to be able to have continued funding funding three-year term funding issues are really hard work for uh, researchers into these areas because they're not sure if their work's just going to be forgotten if they don't get more funding in some way they sure. spend a lot of time and effort trying to get funding yeah. so it becomes a bit of a circle um, but um, it's it's good to see there's a bit of um, positive response from the government and that people are taking a bit more notice yeah it definitely is difficult our family personally has been touched by some very very bizarre cases that people look at me and they're like you have to be making that up and I say no no no, I'm serious that this has happened and we're really excited to talk to you today about some things that you've done in Parliament House that have been particularly close to your heart and it's been hard to find people to really just take on the case and look after yeah. members or of even for, as you say people go really like yeah. it nearly don't believe you yeah and you know finding people to talk to in in a situation where people can actually give evidence and be heard by a parliamentary committee yeah. that actually has been able to come out with some really great um, recommendations and some great action I, you know I take my hat off to the government I'm from the opposition I take my hat off to the government with what they've done. There's a lot more to be done yeah. and I keep pushing them and I won't stop pushing them. Um, but, you know, to have that, just to be heard sure. um, is really important for people in a whole range of areas. I was also um, on the um, stillbirth inquiry mm. and um, just people being able to tell their stories there yeah. um, was really, really important and... I suffered a stillbirth, which is one reason they'd asked me to be on this committee. Um, but having people on the committee that were empathetic, that, you know, a number of us understood what they'd been through, a number of us had had experiences, um, whether, you know, 
Senator Keneally and myself both have had stillborn children. Um, Senator Mulrum was on the committee at the, when he was here at the first time. Um, he'd had a stillborn granddaughter. So uh, knowing a bit about how it works, you know, or what happened, even though it was a long time ago, mm. giving people that sort of authority, I suppose, which is not really the right word, but yeah, that, that ability <laughs> yeah. to be able to tell their story, mm. even though they're in so much pain. We had a, we had a mother at the stillbirth inquiry who 12 weeks earlier had had a stillbirth. And I remember saying to um, my colleagues, I could not have done that 12 weeks after Timmy was born. I could not have done it. But she came along and they told their story and it's really important because that's how the, the senators can come up with recommendations about what's important yeah. um, and how we can change these things. So, you know, it's really, it, I think it's really, really important. It's probably one reason I wanted to be in the Senate yeah. was that you get to hear these stories. Um, I've been here 12 years almost. Um, I've done some pretty interesting inquiries in that 12 years, been on many, many committees over the 12 years. Um, and you just hear some some stories from people, some that make you, you know, want to cry, um, some that are just so hard, as you say, even to believe, but you know mm. they're true. Yeah. Um, and to be able to help people and improve their lives is really, really important. Yeah. And I think as well it's, <clears throat> as especially for members of the family who feel powerless and, you know, having gone through things in our own family and saying, oh, what can I do to help? And people don't know what you can do to help because they don't know what they need or where That's they're right. at. Um, right. And being able to give evidence at a committee like that is something that sort of gives you that little bit of power that you're saying, you know, I'm doing this for this person or I'm doing for the this next for me or yeah. the next person. Yeah. And it sort of allows you to grieve in a way and go through the process but actually have a tangible outcome at the end as well so yeah. it's a very powerful thing and it's something that I love talking about on politics done differently because it's my own passion is the committee work that happens in this building because we get a lot of question time on tv which is sort of an yeah, hour question a time doesn't always um <coughs> show politicians in their finest moments no. I've got to say no um as I said, you know, one of the reasons I wanted to be in the Senate was the committee work. Um, and although there's lots of committee work, um, it's really good to to be able to get those that information from the public. That's yeah. that's the bit that's really important. How do you think we can engage more citizens in committee work? Because, I mean, I know when all the committees are happening, I have them in my diary. I'm calling the committee secretaries, finding out when the next public hearings are. Um, but that I understand I'm not the majority of the population. No, and I think um, quite often, I think they're still advertised. I haven't really checked for a while. Yeah. Um, and generally, organisations know a bit about them uh, and, and what's happening. Um, it was interesting with the stillbirth inquiry, how many people did know about it, mm. how many people wanted to put in submissions and, and then, you know, give evidence. Um, same with the brain cancer inquiry. I, I remember years ago I did the, um, I chaired the uh, committee um, when the government cut funding to the arts mm. and I was the Labor lead for the, um, the inquiry into what's going on, where's this money gone and why. Um, and the arts community just came together as a whole, mm. basically, to, you know, participate in the inquiry and give evidence. And, you know, we travel around Australia where where there's a need, we go to, where there's enough people that have put in submissions. Um, we, we go to those areas for many, many committees. They're not just held in Sydney or Canberra or Melbourne. Yeah. Um, sometimes we even get to Hobart. <laughs> <laughs> It's hard to say how to get more information out to people. Um, I certainly let lots and lots of people in Tassie know what committees I'm on and what inquiries I'm on and things like that. I don't know what um, other centres do. But I, committee secretariats are the, the backbone of this yes. building. 
uh, and they're pretty good at letting people who they think should know and and yeah. and asking they ask the senators for input into who do you think we should contact and yeah. let know about this so yeah. yeah i think there is a lot of communication with sort of peak industry bodies and businesses and yeah. um different departments and things like that I think it's the individual people that get left out of that equation and it's yeah. impossible for the committee secretaries to transmit that information. Yeah. I do <laughs> I do this sort of fairly non-political 10-15 minute chat to a lot of community groups, you know, mm. Lions Clubs, Rotary Clubs, um, University of the Third Age, <laughs> things like that, just in Tassie. And um, I, I was really surprised when I'd done the very first one um, that a number of people like and it was a university of the third age so a number of people you know pre predominantly 50s onwards into their 80s were chatting to me later and said oh we never knew that's what the work that a senator did yeah and it was mainly about committee work and what we did and varying committees i was on and how they worked and you know the fact they're you know cross party and mm. and you know all this sort of stuff yeah. and um i was pretty surprised by that because i thought well some of you people have been voting for probably 60 years but you didn't know what the senate did no it was a bit <laughs> a bit of an eye-opener to me really so. i think there's in the same way that you were talking about sexy cancers before there's almost sexy politicians as well you've got your ministerial positions your prime minister ministerial cabinet yeah. um and then your shadow members and then you've got the mps are sort of the next rung and senators right. are... and senators we're just what, what were we described <laughs> as by paul katie um but yes, we won't go there no <laughs> but i think it's it's difficult because you know, you've got your mp that represents your specific electorate and there's only one in federal parliament anyway living in the act we have the hair clerk system so we've actually oh got... from tasmania but i think you yes, got the hair yeah. clerk system from us yeah we did actually so, that's yeah, very it's true fun, isn't it yeah i actually quite like it because i can bombard five people with a concern um whereas in the act i only really get to annoy three people senators <laughs> and my mp <laughs> um but i think that's another issue with the senators is that you've got 12 of the states yeah. and who do you go to um, is the hard question. I know a lot of people go to everyone. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of emails we find have been sent to everybody, yeah. um, no matter what party. Um, and we do get lots of them, constituent mm. queries, concerns and whatever. Um, I'm fairly lucky in that my I'm the duty senator for Julie Collins, the member for Franklin, mm -hmm. and the electorate of Franklin in... Hobart is actually split by the River Derwent. Mm -hmm. So I've based my office on the western shore mm -hmm. um, and Julie's office is on the eastern shore. So we have a lot of drop, and I'm near next door to us, just about next door to a supermarket. And that. So we get a lot of drop ins and, and people coming in, very accessible. Mm -hmm. um, none of this, you know, on the 20th floor <laughs> of a CBD building. Like some of my colleagues do. Um, I always wanted to be really accessible. I'm very community minded yep. and I wanted to be very accessible to my local community. Um, and I think that that people probably know me, certainly in the local regional area where I live and have my office, um, people probably know me a bit better than maybe some of their other senators. Yep. So. How do you work with your other senators in Tasmania, especially the ones from different parties? It's yeah, it's it's quite interesting. Um, I seem to get on with them all. I yep. think I get on with them all. <laughs> um, I quite like a number of them, even though I don't like their politics. And that's what <laughs> I say to people. People often think I'm just going to sort of not like someone because they're from the government. I go, well, actually, no, I quite like him. Mm. He's always decent, he's always polite, he's always civilised. Um, you know, uh, I don't like his politics, but as on a one-to-one -one basis and a bit of a laugh and a bit of a <coughs> chit-chat walking around the corridors or in votes or whatever, mm. um, you know, I find them... They're just people with a different political view to me. Yes. And that my job is to challenge their political view. Yeah. So... You know, that's what I'll do. Um, 
And I think that's the good thing about committee work too. We, the Senate does much more committee work than the reps. Mm. Um, and so you travel with people and you get to know them as people. Yeah. Um, and I think that's... that. I, th I think my view is that the Senate's probably a lot more congenial mm. uh, than maybe the reps at times. Yeah. I so. think it's that spotlight on politics for a politician that... The only reason we know politicians, a lot of us, is because they're politicians. And so we automatically relate politics to them as humans. But yeah. we forget that, that they, are they leave this building. That's right. <laughs> we go home. And and <laughs> occasionally we yeah. go home. <laughs> From time to time. I left my six-month-old granddaughter in, uh, who oh. lives in Sydney. Yeah. Um, but was in, they were in Hobart for a family wedding. And I had to leave her because they were in Hobart today. And I thought, like, oh. I don't know about this now. <laughs> mm. If they're in Sydney, they, it's not far to travel to It's Canada, not. It's not. Sydney. We're very lucky. I mean, her parents live in Japan, so yep. um, they have yet to actually physically touch the grandchild oh, and goodness. hold it, whereas we've had so much yeah. time. And, and they're so... My, my son and daughter-in-law are so generous with her, you know, yeah. off the plane and hand it to us and things like that. It's Aww. just, yeah, so that's, that's really nice. But we are human. Yes. Yeah. And so, um, what was it that made you get into politics? <laughs> That's a funny story, actually. Um, so one of my previous jobs for a number of years, over a decade, was I was an early childhood educator. And I wanted better training. This is back in the 80s um, and early, very early 90s. Uh, I wanted better training and... I wanted the community to treat early childhood educators with some respect and I wanted them to earn a decent remuneration. Yes. So I got a bit foisty about mm. it. Um, and one of the unions um, then asked me to be a delegate. So, you know, unpaid position. So I did that for a number, number of years. And then there was a case, uh, a national uh, family daycare case and the union asked me to help them with that so it was between Victoria and Tasmania you have to have two states for interstatedness mm -hmm. for this industrial activity so I I helped the union you know in a number of areas all for, all for nothing it was all ornery um, and then when that was sort of over or nearly over I thought it was time to move on from early childhood education. I actually got a bit stroppy <laughs> uh, that kids were having to be wrapped in cotton wool so much. Yeah. I'm, I'm quite a, if the kids want to climb the tree, let them climb the tree, you know, not to 30 feet, but, yeah. you know, um, if the kids want to swing on the swing, mm. you know, and they're four years old, do you really have to have someone in those days? I, you know, was told I had to stand by the swing because there was a four-year-old on the swing. It was like they're four years old. Yeah, exploration yeah. is part of learning. Yeah, and, those and, and you know, you don't want kids to hurt themselves. Yeah. But what I was seeing, or what I thought I was seeing, I could be wrong, mm. was we were wrapping kids in cotton wool, um, and they couldn't. They, they lo were losing resilience. Sure. And resilience is really an important part of life. Um, mind you, nowadays, when my son says to my six-month-old granddaughter, you know, you'll be right, I go, oh, no, she won't. No, she not not quite. But you know, it's like... I know. But resilience is part of life. And I, I sort of saw this generation of kids that I thought weren't being taught resilience enough. Um, There's a whole number of issues, but anyway. So... Um, I resigned from early childhood education, not quite knowing what I was going to do. And when I rang the union and said, look, I've found someone else that will be the delegate and, and you know, they will help you. And I, in fact, I'm happy to keep helping you if you want. They rang me back two days later and offered me a job. Oh. So I went to them six months part-time yeah. um, to finish the case and everything. And at the end of the six months, I had managed to get some funding for the first ever union-based job skills project mm. um, around early childhood education. Um, and then they said to me, I oh, would like you to work full-time. 
So I worked with them for about, yeah, over a decade. Mm. Uh, and then I was headhunted by the then Premier of Tasmania, Jim Bacon, yep. and a couple of his colleagues, a couple of his ministers, to go and work in state government as an advisor. So I did that. Mm-hmm. And the rest's history. <laughs> they just supported me. And yeah. I've got to say, the union were great. They um, mentored me really well yep. uh, and um, did great things. And, and got, they're really where I got really involved in politics, although I do come from quite a strong Labor family background. Yep. Um, and I've had relatives that have run for state politics and you know used to letterbox for them from when I was about 14 or so. So. Yep. Yeah. So politics was something that you would speak about over the dinner table? Yeah, yep. yeah. Very strong Labor family. Um, my dad was a school teacher mm-hmm. and uh, my mum always ran her own businesses but still very strong Labor people, yeah. so yeah. Do you think that we're losing some of those political family dinner conversations with how much technology is in our lives? And I know some yeah. people... Yeah, life's just a rush yeah. So I know it is for me. I mean, my children are grown up and, and yeah. married, but um, I don't see so much of the sitting around the dinner table like mm. used to happen in the fifties and sixties. Yeah. Uh, you didn't have te- you didn't even have te- uh, TV really in the fifties. No. So people would sit around, and I'm sure there was families where dinner was a very quiet event. Mm. Um, children should be seen and not heard. Yes. Type of family, <laughs> but. Um, you know, obviously in other families, it was, yeah, you sit around the dinner table and and even though both my parents worked, mm. um, you know, from when I was about three or four, and I'm one of five children, I'm number four of five children, so uh, we still always had dinner together. Yeah. Um, and uh, although we did have to be quiet when the news was on. Yeah, yeah, I think... Seven it's... o'clock, sorry, seven oh. o'clock ABC <laughs> News, not a sound to be made. Yes, that was the same in our family. So we tried to time dinner either before or after. Yeah, we always had it before. (laughs) We had it before. And if we were very lucky, we'd get to watch, this is how old I am, we'd get to watch Bell Bird, which you probably don't know anything (laughs) about. But (laughs) it used to be on at 20 to 7 before the ABC News. It was a a, um, country country town called Bell Bird. Oh, wow. Yeah, what went on in this country town. (laughs) I think the only thing that we were, uh, I say we, I was, I've got a brother, but I didn't grow up with him because he's a bit older than me. Um, but the only thing that ever was on TV during dinner time was if the AFL was being played and our team was playing <laughs> on a Saturday yeah. night, um, that we might watch that while having dinner. But that was the yeah. only, yeah. only exception to the Yeah, no, that's right. TV was off. Yeah. And then seven o'clock, ABC News. Yeah. I could, you know, I can remember, Dad, you have to be quiet through the news. You had to be quiet through Four Corners. Yes. Um, and the 7.30 report. 7.30 report, <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. You generally, I'd go and do a Australian those Story. Times. <laughs> I don't think Australian Story was on when I was a kid. Oh, there you go. I'm quite old. <laughs> A lot older than me. I just, I older just older think it's been on forever. <laughs> no, <laughs> no, no, it hasn't. Don't yeah. think so, no. Yeah. But I distinctly remember the news in Four Corners yeah. and yeah, the ABC being... Because when I was a kid, there was only two stations in Tasmania anyway. Yeah. The ABC and the commercial station. Oh, so. wow. Yeah, but life was tough. <laughs> we used to actually talk to each other and go yeah. outside and... <laughs> Didn't have Netflix and anything that you want, <laughs> basically. Do you know, I still things. don't have Netflix. Thought pattern mm-hmm. about how important reading is... Not even how important it is, but that it's fun and it's good to do. Uh, you've pretty well set them up for life, I reckon. Yeah. I think my mum used to read to me even when I was in the womb. Still. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah. And I did to my kids yeah. too. Um, and I don't know whether it's because of my early childhood education background or quite what, but I've always, always mm. wanted to read. And I was really excited when I was in Sydney a few weeks ago. Um, I noticed there was library books for my granddaughter. Oh, so that she'd already been to the library and had yeah. some library books. So. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. It is something that's really important, but I know so many people don't read or don't see the value in reading anymore. Yeah. Um, and I try and encourage it. I try and do it in my own life, set aside about 30 minutes. And I'm really old school. I still like books. Yes, me like too. Like paper books. Mm-hmm. Um, 
But look, honestly, if people read online or if they read, you know, buy their books online and read online, I don't care how they do it, but my first suggestion people always is join the library because it's free and they've got so many more things other than just books these days. Yeah. Um, but, you know, the, the library is the first point of call for me. And yeah. Yeah. I think my parents were really good at um, instilling those sort of reading values in me, but I remember... Um, I used to go to the house of one of our close family friends as a children's author in Western Australia, Elaine Forrestal, and they would just have books, like the whole house was basically walking through a library. And I used to just love going in there mm. and looking through. And I still do that. As soon as I walk into someone's house, I look for their bookshelf because it tells you a lot about a person. Do you know what? I think the same thing. And, and... You know, the look these days is a bit more Spartan and mm. don't have books everywhere. And you walk through my front door and the first thing you see is two bookcases. Yeah. Um, and we've got bookcases in other parts of the house as well. Mm. I must admit, I've got rid of lots of books because, mm. um, you know, you do want to save a bit of space. Um, but I, one of our Lions Clubs has this huge book, secondhand bookstall every July. Mm. And... Um, <laughs> I love going to that. Quite often they get me to open it because they know I'm going to go. Yeah. And um, I love going to that because, I, you know, I take a box of books mm. and I come home with a box of books. <laughs> and uh, I'm one of these people that has a pile of books I still haven't read, but yeah. one day I'll, you know, one day I'll retire and I'll yeah. have plenty of time to read. But, um, yeah, if my husband said to me the other week, you know, oh, what do you want? For your birthday, I went, oh, if you can't think of anything, just give me a book voucher. You know, we've been married 38 years. How many times do I need to tell him a book voucher is really good? <laughs> and it is a really great way to give something to someone that is adds value to their life. Yeah, that's right. Educational. Yeah. yeah. Um, but you can, you know, you can learn so much through reading, even just through reading fiction. Yes. You can just learn so much about yourself, about mm. other people get your imagination working i'm never very good at watching movies once i've read a book yeah because my imagination's been quite different to the movie directors yes. yeah. <laughs> i think the other thing with books is the expansion of vocabulary that's exactly right um and i notice that when i talk to people sometimes they say oh, what does that word mean and i think oh it's you just one of those words that you've picked up in a book and you're surprised that people don't know it yeah but it's something that's and even reading the newspaper, there's sort of vocabulary in there yeah. that's very newspaper specific. And because I read the Australian every day, I <laughs> I sort of pick up those words that people say, oh, that's a really bizarre word to use. And I think, oh, I read it every morning. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a book and a dictionary, probably mm. the two. If I, if I had to... Um, think about two things I would really, really want in life besides mm. the basics of, yeah. you know, air and food and clothing and all. Yeah. I do think a book and a dictionary. Gives you a chance to learn a lot. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. There's another topic I wanted to talk to you about, um, which is palliative care, um, something that affects 80,000 Australians a year that people go into palliative care and one in 50 aged care residents are marked as being ready for palliative care. Um, and you've campaigned very strongly around that. Um, you had a bit of success in 2017. You secured funding for three years for um, Palliative Care Tasmania. That's, That's correct. correct. Yeah. Um, but you're facing a bit of a hurdle again. That's now. right. We're doing it all again. I can't believe we're doing it all again. But yeah. Palliative Care is not just about end of life. Mm -hmm. It's about making sure that people with uh, specifically with long-term illnesses and people that are nearing the end of their life can die uh, in a decent way. Yeah. Uh, it's about care and compassion. It's about making sure that everyone has a good death. Mm -hmm. um, to me, I've, I've always been, I've, since I was a teenager, I've been interested in death and dying, mm -hmm. not in a gruesome way, 
but in how we react to it. And it's still a really taboo subject to talk about people dying. and Probably don't have time. That's exactly right. That's what I figure. Why would I bother? My son-in-law shared his Dan thing because you can have yeah. more than one person on set. And then he changed his pass. I had to change his password and he sent me a text and I went, oh, thanks. But I don't think I've ever used it. <laughs> oh, that's... It's good that you can fill your time with other things as long as you're not... Yeah, I'm more a reader. Yeah. I like to read. Yeah. So. Do you yeah. think that's something... I know I've spoken to a, um, a couple of politicians about this before on the podcast, but do you think that's something that we're lacking in our lives a lot is picking up a book and reading and oh yeah i'm I'm an avid avid not pusher not just supporter of Mm. reading especially to kids yeah because if you like i will read a book to my six-month-old granddaughter or try to read a book to her um and one of my greatest joys in life is reading to young kids Mm. and if you can get them into that as my dad used to say there's one thing for certain we're all going to die. Yeah. Everyone's <laughs> going to die. Um, the stats show that 75% of people would like to die at home. Mm-hmm. Uh, 14% of people get to in Australia. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is a huge gap. Mm. So palliative care overall, um, to me, is a really, really important issue. We've got a Friends of Palliative Care group parliamentary friendship group so it's across all the parties any politicians welcome to join we've got quite good quite broad membership mm-hmm. um, and we have events every three or four months here through national palliative care so uh, <clears throat> myself and Nola Marina from the government are the co-chairs um, and you know she's one of those people I just like as a person yeah and we work really really well together um, in this palliative care group you know, we have, there's guest speakers come in, in fact, this week, or next week, one of the two. No, this week, we've got a, a little drinks trolley oh, okay. going event where yeah. you can get a little bit of alcohol because when people are in um, a palliative care, not in the home necessarily, but in a palliative care in a hospice or mm. a hospital, um, one of the things they quite often want is a little bit of alcohol overnight. And yeah. this is showing that, yes, those people can have a little drink mm. To be honest, you're at the end of your life. Yeah. yeah. Most will enjoy it. So palliative care is really important. Um, unfortunately, palliative care Tasmania uh, has not been guaranteed any ongoing funding. Their funding ends in June this year. Sure. For five hundred thousand dollars a year, they save the government millions of dollars. Yeah. Millions of dollars. Uh, so to me, it's an economic no-brainer. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I've been pursuing both the state and federal governments for the last few months, had a petition, got 900 signatures, I tabled that last sitting week, to sort of bring to the fore the fact that palliative care doesn't know if they're going to be ongoing again. So three years ago when I did <coughs> did, did all this, um, they had to get rid of some of the staff, the CEO cut her hours, um, and the trouble is, you know, you lose staff mm. and then you get you've some hopefully some extra funding. Sure. Then you've got to retrain staff yeah. or get you know, get new staff and retrain them. So a bit of continuity and people knowing, mm. especially something like palliative care, I think, knowing that they've got ongoing funding it would be a, a real win. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So you were saying before that um, you've done things like petitions how else do you campaign for those kind of issues I know you've made a few speeches in Parliament I made, made quite a few speeches in Parliament I talked to the ministers mm-hmm. um, talked to the shadow ministers yeah um, we do media um, with palliative care TAS in particular as I said the parliamentary friendship group raising awareness overall about palliative care and how important it is yeah. so yeah your uh, when three years ago, how specifically did you work? Because obviously you've got to work with the government, which is they have different ideals and values to you. Yeah. That's why you're in different parties. How do you bridge that gap? Because I think we. Well, it's a- interesting because I think there's a lot of support for palliative care across yeah. the across the political divide, yeah. um, and I certainly know some of my 
the government senators in Tasmania have been very supportive. Um, so and which obviously helps. Yeah. Um, so some some topics I think you find aren't so political mm. as you know it's the bottom bottom line. It's yeah. who's going to write the check. Yeah. Um, and how long is it going to take? Mm-hmm. Uh, because you can't just not plan ahead. So the issue about working with people isn't a huge issue to me. Mm-hmm. Because, and I must admit, I found the minister quite approachable. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, it's just a bit, bit of a case of you know we want some action and we want it sooner rather than later, so that they don't have to close the door or let staff go or. You know, I mean, they're such an amazing organisation. They have, years ago when we were in government, they had a pilot project and they was meant to reach, I think it was like a thousand people and they reached 5,000, you know, and they just work over and above and beyond. But I think there's still this whole issue in the community that you don't talk about death and people think that palliative care is just for old people who are at the end of life. Whereas it's for kids that have got a terminal illness or a life-threatening, you know, end-of-life type issue. It's for anybody. It's for any age group. Uh, and I think if you can die the way you want to, which is why we should all write um, contracts, you know, yeah. that you can lodge with your doctor to say what you, what you want, what treatment you want, whether you want to be resuscitated or not. Um, yeah whether you want, you know, Auntie Millie by your bedside or not, that yeah. type of thing. Yeah. Um, because quite often the patient loses a lot of control when yes. they're dying. Yeah. Uh, people think they know what the patient wants mm. or what the person wants. Um, families bicker quite a lot of the time, not always, but quite a lot of the time. Um, my dad died in 2015. He was very clear about how he wanted things, what he wanted. We'd had the chats. I must admit it took a while to get them to chat because nobody wants to think that they're going to die. <coughs> no. So I'd sort of started a number of years before talking to my parents mm. um, about, you know, what's what do you want when you die? You know, it just sort of, oh, what sort of funeral do you want? No. Oh, don't talk about that. You know, don't talk about it. No, we need to talk about it because yeah. you could get run over by a bus tomorrow. Yeah. You never know, really. Yeah. A lot of us don't know when we're going to die. Some people do. But a lot of us don't. Yeah. Um, so it's a case of trying to make that death the best that it can be. Yeah. Well, we don't usually give out homework on politics done differently, but I think for all our listeners, it's a good call to action is to actually go home and have these conversations have the chat. Yeah, yeah talk to your family just get on the same page i know even for me um i'm quite young but last year i yeah had to go through a journey where i faced my own mortality and it's still sort of ongoing at the moment but um i had to start thinking about those kind of things and it's not it's not a pleasant thing to think it's about. not it's very hard um, um i know when i had my brain tumors mm. i was told there's really three options yep surgery and treatment and you'll be fine if you're really lucky which i was you might end up a vegetable Mm -hmm. or you might die uh so speak to your family now this Mm -hmm. was all sort of out of the blue really sudden 24 48 hours um well in fact i had less than 24 hours i'd been they put me into a sort of an induced coma for a few days and then i had less than probably 24 hours to to deal with all of this and my daughter um is quite musical and um, she was about 19 or 20 at the time and I said I want you to choose my music Mm. and she went oh don't be stupid mum you're not gonna die I said well hopefully I'm not but Mm. I'm telling you I want you if I do I want you to choose my music Mm. Um, and she was like I don't want to talk about this you know but yeah but I think it's really important that you just sort of push through a bit to... Yeah. I, mean, I, I do think you just never know. I, can, I don't have to worry about that. You just never know, really, when you're going to die. Yeah. It can happen very, very suddenly to a lot of people. Not everyone has a 
a pre-warning or a slow lingering death and I think it's really important to families yes. to know what you want. My dad's my dad's funeral, uh, you know, it was basically a happy occasion, not mm. because we were pleased he'd died, but we were pleased he was out of pain. Yeah. Um, but he really was only sick for seven weeks. Yeah. Um, but it was enough time to know, yep, this is what he wants, this is what he doesn't want. Sorry, do you want me to turn that off? That's fine. <laughs> We're just having a very intense conversation and we've got... Bells ringing and beepers um, going. Yeah, I think this is a bit different to what people might have heard before on Politics Done Differently where we've got both division bells ringing at once and also the pager, which all politicians carry to let them know that their chamber's being called. So, but you don't have to go. I'm, I'm fine for this. I can yep. miss this bit. <laughs> no worries. Yeah. Um, and... I am conscious of the fact that the clock is getting closer to 10 o'clock now. Um, but I'd love to know what advice do you have for people who feel disengaged in politics? And I think this episode's been really fantastic chatting with you um, because you've spoken so positively about your working relationship with the government and admitted that there are differences and you have a position where you have to really push them on some issues. Um, but there's not that kind of bickering that people tune out, oh, I don't want to hear all this drama, I just want people to leave the country. What can the listeners do to engage in politics and feel like they have a bit of power in their hands? I think it's really important that people realise that it's their future, <laughs> that, people are, that, that politicians are dealing with. Yeah. That's really, really important. And it's the future of their kids and their grandkids. Yeah. Um, so you think about the world that I might want for my new grandchild. Sure. Uh, and you know there's some things that quite concern me mm -hmm. um, and you think well I want the laws to be able to deal with those issues in a, in a caring and compassionate way to me it's not just about um, the budget bottom line although as I've said I understand the bucket of money is limited yeah. but um, I do get cross when um, you know, important services are cut, mm. people and people are made to suffer just to just to reach that budget bottom line mm. or to reach that you know ever important surplus. Um, read a newspaper, although sometimes they're a bit. But just engage, just just talk to your your friends and your your colleagues a bit about you know what's important to you and get, and start engaging that way. Um, your vote's very important, mm. uh, and although voting's compulsory, I know quite a few people don't vote, but it is very important. But think about um, not just the spin, you know, at election time, but what you see people doing out there in the community as well. Yeah. And yeah. um, when are the next elections in state and local government in Tasmania? Uh, so state governments, what year are we, 2020? Uh, <laughs> Two years away, yeah. I think. If I'm yeah, two years away, and federal government's the same year. So twenty twenty two, it must be. Yeah. yeah. And local government. Uh, ah, yeah. well, local government's spread out. Yeah. So at the minute, oh, well, we the upper house seats are spread out in mm -hmm. Tassie as yeah. well. So they're not all done at one time. So we've got two campaigns going on at the minute sure. for two different upper house seats in Tassie. Okay. Um, and then local government. They changed. They did change it a while ago, and I can't really remember. I think yeah. they're spread out too. Yeah. I think I, they split them. It's like it's I, very confusing. <laughs> In fact, that's probably part of the problem yeah. with people being engaged is they get sick of constantly, you know, people seeing posters for people running for things and not knowing what's happening and what they're running for. Yeah. Um, I seem to have been in constant campaign mode for about twelve years. Yes. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, but, um, I noticed Tasmania's local elections were a bit different to what I'd seen in other states. Um, but I think that's a great place for people to start to engage in politics. In local, local government. It yeah. is. It is. If you're at all interested in going into politics, um, yeah, I think local government's a really good place to, yeah. to get your foot in the door and realise what it's like and whether you really want to do it or not. Yeah. Um, it's quite hard, I think, local government. Um, it is. And, um, yeah... So I've never ran in local government. I came straight to the Senate, really. But yeah. um, I think it's, it is a good starting place for people. Yeah. yeah. 
and those elections are really important for the population to engage in absolutely obviously. yeah yeah especially for local government because that's your local home area um you, you know and you, you're right people do feel disengaged federally and yeah. and even at state government level to some extent i think mm. but um you know tassie's in particular which is the area i obviously know best is great i think because people know their members better and their senators better i think yeah. 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 And I think it's those those little niggling concerns like the footpath that needs to be redone or, you know, the yeah. the, the tree that needs street, to be yeah. cut down and those kind of things that you can actually get action on quite quickly. Yeah. But the local government area where I live is um, setting up this new playground for kids in a new development. So there was an old high school that was empty for years and years yeah. and years. And the council finally bought it and they've rejigged it, set up a whole community hub there. Oh, wow. It's really wonderful. And now they're doing this playground and they actually went to the people of the area about what do you want in this playground. Mm. And, um, you know, that's really, you can do that sort of thing much easier in a local government area because it's a confined area. Yes, yeah. Um, but really great to do, so, yeah. yeah. Oh, fantastic. Well, there's a lot of great information for our listeners. And oh, thank you for helping us. Oh, thank and... you. Oh. It's been fun. Yeah. Been I don't great. do much media, like mainstream media. Yeah. Um, I wouldn't call this mainstream. <laughs> no, but, you know, it's like, it, there's plenty of people that want to do mainstream media. I'm yeah. just more a community-based person. And yeah. Do community-based stuff. So yeah. this is really good. Yeah, it's important to get... Um, the stories of the people that you've helped and your story as well. Thank you for sharing that with us. And, um, Pleasure. Yeah. Hope it's some insight. Thank you. And we hope to see you again on the show. Indeed. Thank you for tuning in to Politics Done Differently. We hope you enjoyed this episode. If you would like to hear more, please go back through our library for more insightful interviews. Please subscribe to the podcast and follow us on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter at PD Differently. If you want to get involved in the conversation, please hashtag PD Differently. We look forward to seeing you next episode.